0: Well, good morning. My name is Steve. Uh and I'm just one of you people as you know. So here I am and we are going to begin a series of sermons today in the book of Judges. Now, Matt just finished the book of Ruth, which we saw in the first chapter is set during the time of the judges. But as we're going to see As we get in here, and if you've ever read the book of Judges, the book of Ruth and the book of Judges, fundamentally different stories. When you hear the book of Ruth and you hear that story, you're like, aww, he loves her. It's so wonderful. You feel warm inside. But when you get the book of Judges, it's like, oh no, it's disgusting. And there's brutality and gruesomeness. And so, anyway... um, so we're going to get into the book of Judges, and, and this week we're going to look at the whole of the book, and then in the in the coming weeks we're going to look at um, the judges individually. So we got a lot to do, so let's jump right in to chapter 2, which to me is the central passage of the whole book, and it's going to summarize everything for us. So Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress." Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations of Joshua, that that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand, of Joshua. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, now in order to understand what we just read, we need to set this story in the much larger context. So let's go all the way back to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God's people are in bondage in slavery to the people of Egypt. And so God, through a series of events, goes in, rescues them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm from the bondage of slavery, brings them out, Uh, Into the wilderness and brings them to a mountain called Sinai. And at Sinai, uh, most famously, he gives them the Ten Commandments. But before that, in Exodus 19, he says to the people, I have a new vocation for you. I have a new purpose for you in this world. And then he tells them this Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You yourselves. So, God says to his people, his recently rescued people, here's what you are to be in this world a kingdom of priests, mediating the presence of the Most High God to the world. A holy nation set apart from every other nation, so that when all the nations see this nation, Israel, It would be like a centripetal force where they would all be drawn inward to see what human flourishing actually looks like under the lordship of God and be dazzled by it and say, well, well, we want that too. And so that, um, even beyond that, God says, okay, not only that, but I want to give you a land in which you can follow me. Okay, so he gives them the promised land, the land of Canaan. That, we can, that they can practice their vocation in. And so the Lord chooses Joshua to lead them through the wilderness, or Moses through the wilderness, and then Joshua to actually lead them into the land and to settle it. Now, as Joshua goes into the land, uh, they quickly discover that this land is still inhabited. It's not an empty land. And so, um, the people of Canaan who lived there um, turns out they were pretty bad people. But regardless, um, God says to his people, all right, I want you to go into the land. This is the land that I've promised you. And I want you to do this. I want you to go in there. I want you to look those people in the eye and I want you to say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No, he didn't do that. He actually said, um, well, he said, what's in the book of Deuteronomy, if you happen to know. Um, He said, okay, people, in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done, for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Okay, so God says, When you go into the land, save alive nothing that breathes. And the reason is because I don't want the, the pagan people with their pagan gods and their abominable rituals to influence the way you serve me. Now, the book of Judges is a story about how the people of Israel rejected this command of God. They allowed the people of Canaan to remain among them, and they rejected their vocation as priests and as a holy nation. And we're going to see the tragic results that ensued. But... I can't really get to that part of the story yet because I've brought up a thorny issue. Um, It appears from this passage that God commanded his people to go into the land and commit ethnic cleansing. That's what it sounds like. And this is a stumbling block for a lot of people today. And uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat this or show you some like, neat interpretive trick that I've got here in my pocket that, that after I show it to you, you're going to be like, oh, I knew God wouldn't do that. No, that's not. I mean, you're grown ups, We're going we're to talk about this um, plainly. There is not a trick like that. The truth is plain. God sent his people into the land with the command to save alive nothing that breathes. And I'm not naive enough to think that nobody in this room has ever not stumbled over that as well. And if you look outside of this congregation, beyond these walls, you'll find scores of people lined up that will testify that it was this kind of thing, precisely this, that made them lose confidence in the Bible, and more significantly, the God of the Bible, And even further, you will find people who are hostile to the church and the Christian doctrines take this kind of thing up and use it like a club to tell us that we ought not to believe such things. So, what are we to say? What are we to say when people pass a verdict on God that he is guilty of ethnic cleansing, guilty of murder, and therefore fundamentally untrustworthy? Let's see, let's see what we can do here. All right, so I want to explain to you, I want to try to explain this to you using the logic of the Bible, okay? If you're here today and you've condemned God as a moral monster for doing this kind of thing, then I'm afraid that what I'm about to say to you won't convince you. Any any argument, however, in which there are two participants, one of the prerequisites is that each of them show each other charity and kindness. And so I'm just going to ask you, receive this. See, just come into the the biblical house for a minute, and I'm going to try to show you how it stands. And you may leave afterwards saying, yeah, that thing is still crooked, but at least just come in, sit down for a minute, and warm yourself by the fire, and let me try to show you how it's built. So the biblical logic goes like this. Number one, God created all things, and therefore owns it all, and rules it all as a kind of generous sovereign. Number two, God established the moral law of the universe, and this law is an expression of his character. What I mean by that is, for example, commandment number nine says, you shall not bear false testimony, and the whole reason that we have that commandment is because God himself is truthful Never tells a lie, so the commandment is an expression of his character. So God, number two, God established the moral, moral law of the universe. Number three, for anyone who keeps God's law, God offers eternal life. For anyone who breaks even one commandment, God promises death. Because the breaking of God's law is a rejection of God himself. Because no life can be found apart from God. Number four, every living human, except for one, Jesus Christ, has broken God's law and therefore stands condemned in his court. And as we already saw, death is the merited penalty for that. All right, I got one more, but let me just try to summarize. According to the Bible, if God created all things and established both the moral order of the universe and the consequences for breaking it, then he is obligated by his own justice to execute those judgments um, on all who break it. And the guilty population here happens to be all human beings, everyone who has ever drawn breath in the history of the world except for the one, of course. So if you were to line up every human being who has ever lived, they all deserve, according to the Bible, a death sentence from God. That is the just reward of their rejection. Therefore, number five, when God commands the killing of a whole nation of people, he is only executing justice. This is what they themselves have already merited. that make sense? At least in the logic of the Bible. So far from being a moral monster, God is actually acting in the most just fashion imaginable. And that means that if we live within the biblical house, within the logic of the Bible, then the shocking thing isn't that God destroys anyone, let alone a whole nation. The shocking thing is that God allows anyone to live. That breath you just took, what? Are you kidding me? Another one, and there's another one. That should astonish us so much that we fall on the ground in praise. That is the logic of the Bible. And that speaks to God's loving kindness, um, which, of which I'll say more later. Now, if you say that God is immoral for killing these people, it's only because you believe that the Canaanites were innocent, right? Um, if they're innocent in the sight of God, that, then God doesn't deserve to punish them. Now, according to the Bible, they are not. Or I should say, they were not. And we are not. And if the Bible is true, then we ought to melt into puddles of um, thanksgiving that any of us lives to see another day. So that's the logic of the Bible. If it, makes, it makes sense if you live in that house. That's that's really the only place it makes sense. And if you don't trust that the Bible is God's inspired word, then it won't make sense to you. And you might still politely walk out the door and still believe that those who live within it can't see the crookedness of the house. And that's okay. God's people have always been peculiar in that way. But if you're convinced that the house is crooked, all right, listen, if you're convinced that that house is crooked and ought to be condemned because it is not a habitable structure, then let me out, allow, allow me to ask you this. How did you come to know that your standard is the straight one and the Bible's is the crooked one? Just think about it for a second. How did you come to know that your standard is the straight one and the Bible's is the crooked one? If you say our house is crooked, that means that you have something straight against which you are measuring it. And your measuring line in your mind is plumb. And how do you know? How do you know it plumbs to reality? If you say, well, I would never order the killing of a whole nation then your plumb line is yourself. You set yourself against the God of the scriptures and say, because I would never do such a thing, I am straight and he is crooked. And just so you know, this is a very innovative position to take in the whole history of the world. You stand against a very long history. Let's just take theology out of it. Historically speaking, this is a very innovative position. There's this marvelous little passage from an essay by C.S. Lewis called God in the Dock, which he says this, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the kind of God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Now, I've gone on too long on this question, but let me just say this. I told you ahead of time, if you don't believe the Bible, then the logic of the Bible won't make sense to you on this issue, that's fine. Just set that aside for a moment. My only question for you is this. Are you sure that you want to be in the position of the prosecutor of God? Are you sure enough that you want to be in that position? Take the historical view. You believe that your house is straight But everyone, don't you know, everyone in all ages has believed their house is straight. Even those houses that were riddled with patriarchy and racism and sexism and all of this stuff, even all of those people believed that their house stood up straight. And we look back on them and go, how could you have believed that? And we laugh with scorn at them. How do you know that the house that you live in, in 200 years, your great-great-great-grandchildren aren't going to look back with shame on your beliefs? You don't know, because we haven't got there yet. So, back to Judges. Okay, apology ended. All right, back to Judges. So, um, we're going to see a lot of brutality in this book, and that was my best um, attempt at helping you navigate it faithfully. So, the command for God's people is to go in and to destroy the Canaanites completely so that Israel can live out its vocation as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation but even at the very outset, we see God's people refusing to do this. Chapter one, the book opens, and we see that the uh, the Israelites are successful. They capture a king, one of the Canaanite kings, and we see what they do to him. They don't destroy him. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, that's, we'll set that aside for a minute, um, but, but the point is not the, the punishment. The point is the king himself is is shamed, but then he, he's probably, you know, in pain because of his wounds now. But he, he realizes, okay, this is this is justice. I, I have done I have cut the thumbs and the big toes off of 70 kings in my time, and now I'm just getting what I deserve. Now, that's not the point. The point is the people of Israel are punishing kings like pagan kings punish kings. So, so keep that in mind. Okay, that, that's how the book opens. Then we get to chapter two, and we see that the abandonment is complete. That's where our text comes from. And the central passage of that text is 11 through 12, and it says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. And so the Lord is angry at his people's apostasy, And he removes his protection from them and sends in plunderers to subdue them and get their attention. And here we see the cycle of the book of Judges and we see it over and over again. Number one, the people abandon the Lord. Then the Lord sends in a nation to defeat them and subdue them. Then the people are subdued and they are miserable. Then. They cry out to the Lord, and the Lord, in unimaginable mercy, raises up a judge, and the judge goes in and delivers them. Then there is peace in the land, and then when the judge dies, they go right back into bed with the bales and the ashtaroth. and it starts all over again. Now we're going to look at most of the judges individually, as I said, over the next few weeks. So I just want to give you the briefest of overviews at this point. Now the first couple of judges are not bad. They're, they're pretty. They're okay. Okay. So we've got um, Othniel first, then Ehud, and then Deborah. And they're they're good, but not the kind of goodness that you would want to like show your kids and say, hey, you know, be like these people. Um, We we see the enemy, King Sisera, under the judgeship of Deborah, on the run, and he goes into a tent, and uh, this woman jail, you know, stakes his head to the ground through his temple with a tent peg. It's pretty brutal. Um, So if you want, you know, like a role model for your daughter, go back to Ruth. This is not the place. (laughs) This is not the place. Okay, Um, then... (laughs) So then the judges themselves start getting worse, okay? You've got Gideon, who is a coward and eventually leads his people at the end of his life to idolatry. Then you've got Jephthah, who's kind of like this gangster who lives out in the hills, whom God said, I want my people to be delivered by you. And so he comes in and he he, uh, renders a great victory and then it, he says to the Lord, if you give me this victory, I will sacrifice to you whatever comes out of my tent first, okay? And so it just so happens that it's his daughter, his only daughter who comes out first. And he's like, oh, I guess I have to sacrifice you now. And he does it. He does it. He's, and here's the point here. It's not that he commits this weird act. The point is that's what the Canaanite gods demanded of their people, human sacrifice to satisfy their anger. And so even the leaders of Israel are treating God as a pagan God. They have forgotten his character. Okay, so, but that's not the end of the spiral. It goes further. Um, Then comes the worst judge of all, Samson. Samson. Now know, I find it strange how often um, you see like uh, VBS posters and everything. It's like, oh, Samson. And it's like, no, God, I mean, you know, be like Samson. God help me if my children turn out like Samson. This man was arrogant. He was extremely strong, extremely boastful. If he lived today, he would fill an Instagram feed with pictures of himself like in the mirror flexing. Like, I mean, that, that would be him. But that was the least of his problems. He had a hair trigger on his anger which sent him out to murder 300 men just to get their clothes because he lost a little bet concerning a riddle. And he lusted after women with a power that has not been exceeded in all of the biblical record. He demands a foreign wife, which was its own thing back then. He demands a foreign wife... And is so taken with her that he gives up to her the secret of his strength, and he is defeated because of it. He's chauvinistic, he's hot-tempered, he's murderous. This is not the kind of man I want my sons to resemble. And and so that's the leaders are getting worse. And then we get to the bottom of the barrel. In the final section of the book, we've hit bottom. And I'm not gonna go into the grisly details, but believe me, it is dark at the bottom of the well. Now, in modern times, <clears throat> we have a paradigm for evil. Okay, If you wanted to, if I asked you, what, what's the most evil person slash group of people you could think of? Of course, you're going to say Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. That's like our paradigm for evil. You compare them, um, you, you, that's as evil as it gets. Now, if you would ask the Israelites what their paradigm for evil is. What's the worst that it gets? They would have said, Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah is the worst that it gets. Now you'll recall if you've ever read the story that the story of Sodom goes something like this and I will try to stay up here for the mixed company. Um, uh, Abraham's cousin Lot lives in a city called Sodom, and two angels he finds who are apparently in the form of men uh, in the town square. And he says, oh, you must come in. uh, And he shows them hospitality and stay under my house. And then not too long later, a bunch of worthless fellows start knocking on the door and said, hey, Lot, send those guys out that we may know them. I trust you understand. And And Lot says, no, you must not do this. They are my guests. I'm a man of honor. They are under my protection. So here are my two daughters instead. Now the two angels see what's happening. They strike all those men with blindness so that it doesn't actually happen. And Lot heads out and uh, the city is destroyed. But that's the paradigm of evil That's the bottom, the the dregs of the bottom of the barrel of wickedness in the mind of an Israelite. So what we see here in the final chapters of Judges is that the Israelites reenact that scene, almost word for word from Genesis. It's astonishing. Except this time, no angels intervene. A nameless concubine is sent out to the group, the villainous rabble of men, and they devastate her, and they leave her dead on the doorstep. And you can see how far we've fallen at this point. God says to his people in Exodus 19, you, I've chosen you, I've rescued you, I've redeemed you, and you are a kingdom of priests. A holy nation, which will put my glory and my goodness and my kindness and my loving, my steadfast love on display for all of the world to see. And here at the end of Judges, the people are Sodom. They're worse than Sodom because nobody intervened to stop them. Now, that's the book of Judges. <laughs> Get excited for the summer. Now when we're interpreting a biblical text, it's always equally important to ask two things. Number one, what does this text mean? But the second question that we hardly ever ask of a text is, what is this text supposed to do in the people who hear it? What does it mean and what is it supposed to do? Okay, Um, I think it's pretty clear. Um, What does this mean? The book of Judges gives us a sort of anti-exemplar narrative. These judges—Samson, Jeff the Gideon, etc.—they're meant to be repulsive to us. They're meant to show us what it's like to forget the character of God and walk in ways altogether foreign to our confession. It's—I mean, okay, it's true that in all of these men's lives, just every once in a while, there's like a flicker of faith. Every once in a while. But even so, the message over this book is don't be like this. Don't abandon God. Don't walk in these ways. At least that's what I thought when I first read it. And then something messed me up for a good while, and I didn't know what to make of it. And that something was Hebrews chapter 11. You know Hebrews chapter 11, it's that famous chapter, which describes all the paragons of our faith. Um, It goes through Abraham and Moses, and it talks about how they were not reconciled to God and justified to God because of what they did in their works, although the works were wonderful. They were justified before God and accepted by God because of their faith, okay? And so, I mean, you, you could not get to better men to exemplify this, even though they had their faults, for sure. But you've got Abraham, and you've got Moses. And then you get to Hebrews eleven thirty-two, And after all of these men and women who are described as being commended to God by their faith, you get this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, who through faith conquered kingdoms. (laughs) I really can't express to you how deeply troubled I was by this verse. I mean, the truth is, I was not misinterpreting judges. All the commentaries say, sort of the message of this book is, don't be like this. That's still true. And and it's meant to show how progressively wicked the judges were and how Israel abandoned the Lord and fell into idolatry and disgrace. So what is the author of Hebrews doing here? How can he say that Gideon, the coward and idolater, Samson, the womanizer and the murderer, And Jephthah, the man who sacrificed his own daughter because he thought the Lord was like a pagan god, how can these men be commended for their faith? Do you feel that? It messed me up. And that's when it hit me. This book is supposed to be doing two things in the people, not one. The first, it is supposed to give us this anti-exemplar cast to tell us, don't be like these people, don't walk in these ways, that's true, and warn us against imitating, but secondly, and listen to this, secondly, it's meant to make us marvel at how crooked are the instruments with which God writes the unfolding drama of his redemption. Let me say that again. It's meant to make us marvel at how crooked are the instruments with which God writes his unfolding drama of redemption. And that's when I remembered those words of Jesus where he's looking at those exemplars of morality, the Pharisees, and he says to them, don't you know that the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God ahead of you? And that's when I remembered the Apostle Paul say to Timothy, I am the chief of sinners. In Paul's own imagination, he is the worst imaginable man that he can think of. So God writes his unfolding drama of redemption throughout all of history in the straightest and most beautiful of letters, but with the crookedest and foulest of instruments. And that's when I remembered, perhaps most significantly of all, the point around which God's whole redemptive story turns is the crookedest and foulest-looking instrument of them all. This instrument was God himself in a body that was beaten and bloodied and brutalized and nailed forcibly to a piece of wood. And we see in Isaiah... 52 and 53, the prophets say this, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of man. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. How crooked are the instruments with which God writes the story of his redemption? Now, I've got to hasten to close here, so I just want to ask, of what use can we put this doctrine? And I think there are at least two. Number one, if you belong to God through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, God is using you for his redemptive purposes. His story is being told, and and those pages are unfolding through you. Do you contend with addiction? The good news is, in Christ, God uses the crookedest of instruments to write his story of redemption. Have you broken and violated your marriage vows so that when you look behind you, all you see is wreckage? Good news. God uses the crookedest of instruments to write the unfolding drama of his redemption. Have you behaved in ways, either outwardly or inwardly, that would, that would cause God's shame to be called your God? The good news is, God uses the crookedest of instruments to write the unfolding drama of his redemption. Nowhere does our Lord say, keep in mind, that we may remain in the wreckage of our sin. In the power of the Spirit, we must go to Jesus. We must repent. That much is true. But don't you know that you cannot be bad enough to be robbed of the dignity of being a part of God's unfolding drama of redemption? That's the good news that we see today in Christ. And that's for us to think about for ourselves. Use number two. It may be detrimental, probably, to think too long on how God uses us and, and how crooked we are and all that sort of thing. You might, you might be tempted to just believe that, well, I, I guess I could just stay like this. He, he's going to use me anyway. I, no, that, it might be tempting to go there. So it may be... It may not be a good thing to dwell too much on our own crookedness and how God uses us in spite of it. But I think it's impossible to dwell too much on that reality for your neighbor. You know what I mean? Like, like you may have deep and painful wounds, for example, inflicted by your husband or your wife over time, and and, and over that time, you begin to see them, and all you can see is their crookedness and how it hurts you. But I wonder how it might change your marriage to understand that God looks at Samson, for example, and like the 30 seconds in his whole life that he had faith, <laughs> and then he responds with Hebrews 11. Samson, you are commended for your faith. In spite of all of that, you are commended for your faith. To look at your husband or your wife or your children or your friends who vex you to no end and to remember beyond all my reckoning, God has chosen this person, crooked as they appear, to advance the purposes of God in this world and in my life. And one day, if that person is in Christ, my whole outlook on them will be changed in a moment when before the judgment seat of God, we see God the Father pronounce that benediction over that person, well done, my good and faithful servant. Isn't that astonishing? Now, one more thing. If you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't believe this, you think the house is crooked and you've refused to live in it because you thought it ought to be condemned. Well, um, there may be someone in here who's, who, who won't come to Christ, won't come to the crooked instrument of redemption precisely because you feel that your own crookedness is too powerful to ever be straightened out. The, the angles are too severe. You, you don't know how bad it has been. But are you worse than Paul? Paul was a terrorist, He systematically murdered Christians. Are you worse than Samson? Okay, let's say you're even as bad as them. Good news, they were commended for their faith. Come in, why why do you wait? You, You will find that if you will only believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, there is enough atoning blood to cover your sins and for you to find redemption in the shed blood of Jesus. And the only condition, the only condition is for you to know just how crooked you are and it sounds like you already know. The only person who can straighten what is crooked is Jesus Christ, you must come. Where else will you find such a promise? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now we come to the table The body and blood of our Lord Jesus. We do this every week, and every week our Lord sets the table for us, and He invites us to come and sit down and do this in remembrance of Him. Now, these elements, this bread and this cup, they're not magic. It's not as though if if you don't have faith or if you're, you know, rejecting God or whatever, and you take these, something will happen. Like, they're not magic. The good that Is done to you through these elements is the fact that in order to come, the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 11, you must examine yourself. You must repent of your sins. And you must believe afresh in the forgiveness of sins. That is what does you good. And so as you come today, you must come in repentance. As we all partake of this, we must examine ourselves and see how crooked things are and to praise God for, how straight he, for, for how the beauty and how straight he has written through our lives. The only place you can find that, that the crookedness is starting to straighten out is by coming to this table, is by believing in Jesus. Is by receiving the grace that he has, that he has accomplished and purchased for you. And so that is the invitation. You must come and you must enjoy his presence. So let us pray. Our Father, once again, we have opened your word and once again you have attended us with power. And for that we are grateful. Now, we pray that you would open our hearts. We pray that as these these weak-looking elements, bread, juice, come into our hands and then go into our mouths, that you would awaken our hearts. And you would help us to see that the kingdom is among us. You would fill our imaginations so that we may go out with songs on our lips. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are invited, all of you, to come if you name the name Jesus as your Savior. Otherwise, you're invited to stay in your seat and reflect. But don't stay in your seat. Believe and come and sit at the table with us. You must. You're invited.